News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we've been talking this week once again about overdoses in our province. The numbers were sky high from the BC corner. Uh, we know that fentanyl is the huge problem here and has been for years. But you know what? Fentanyl also has been around for a very long time. But when did it, I don't know, switch over and become something so dangerous and so uncontrollable that it causes an overdose crisis in places all over the world, and of course, nowhere more so than right here in BC. What do we need to know about what changed about this deadly drug? Joining us now to talk more about this is Michael Gray, the founder and chair at the Fentanyl Awareness Coalition. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Michael, how long has fentanyl actually been around? So fentanyl was invented in 1959 uh, in Europe by Janssen Pharmaceuticals. It is what we call a synthetic chemical, meaning a man-made chemical. And man-made chemicals are typically developed to mimic something in nature, but by making them ourselves, we get more freedom to make as much as we want and to sort of change its properties a little bit as we need to. So fentanyl was invented in the 1950s as a synthetic version of morphine, which has very similar uh, properties to morphine in terms of pain reduction, analgesia, and, uh, and respiratory cardiac uh, uh, suppression as well. So it has all those same properties of natural morphines, but we can make it ourselves. That's why, that's why we invented it, and that's why we like it, and it's a wonderful drug when used medically in hospitals. Right, but when did that change? Obviously, it changed somewhere along the way. What happened? So what happened was that there was a major uh, opioid usage uh, market here in North America in what we would call traditional opioid, uh, for the most part, you know, uh, diacetylmorphine, a.k.a. heroin. And uh, the, there was a, a very, very specific moment that in my seminars, it takes me about an hour to work through the process. But suffice it to say that there was a very sudden moment in 2013 when, when Chinese pharmaceutical companies began producing mass volumes of this chemical as an illicit creation, uh, the, the legal markets were all completely taken care of through the medical establishment. So the Chinese uh, uh, chemical companies began producing this stuff at mass volumes and then dumped it into the North American market. And for reasons that would take some time to explain, fentanyl as a product in the illicit market is profoundly superior to what it was displacing, heroin, right? Because it works in about one one hundredth to maybe one one thousandth the volume. So for something that you want to keep secret and keep away from the police, having one one thousandth the size for the same sort of market uh, application is a great benefit and it's much less expensive. So it very quickly displaced that traditional usage heroin and took over the market. So that was the first step that fentanyl came in and took over the whole market. Then the real problem with fentanyl is that it has a potency level that's about a thousand times more than some of those morphines, some of the fentanyl analogs. So when this is mixed by drug traffickers, not pharmaceutical companies, it's very, very difficult. In the pharma industry, fentanyl would be one of the most difficult drugs to mix and keep quality control on because it's so, so potent and you dose it at such tiny, tiny levels, microgram levels, which is one one millionth of a sugar cube. Okay, that's the level of dosing. So when drug traffickers do this, they can't do it safely. So you had 2013 where all of this fentanyl came in and started killing people at a high rate because of its potency. And then what happened, the next step of that was that the drug traffickers 
of Mexico, mostly, got this idea that they could start putting this into pills so that instead of just getting to the heroin market, which maybe is a million and a half or two million users in North America, they could get it to 25, 30 million people who are taking different kinds of opioid pills illicitly. So they began to backfill that market. So they took that higher death toll of fentanyl and then put it out into new markets where people traditionally didn't die. So now that's what all that increased death is. In addition to the traditional overdose crisis that happens from people who are chronically addicted, take too much one day and die, you now added this concept of a pill pressed out of fentanyl that is deadly the day it's made and that the poor unsuspecting kid who takes it dies. So all of this increased death is not overdose at all. It's all poisonings of kids who took one pill that they thought was a Xanax, they thought was an Adderall, they thought was an Oxycontin, and it turned out to be fentanyl. One out of 20 of those pills, because of what I explained about right. the potency and the inability of dealers to mix, is lethal. So and that's what happened. Michael, so then the, the people who are making this, the drug make these, the cartels and all the people involved in this, is that just... Um, collateral damage because they're making so much money? Because I always wonder, like, why do they want to kill their customers? Ah, good question. So, yes, yes, the, the most basic answer is collateral damage. They don't want to kill their customers, but unlike most legitimate businesses, they really have, you know, they're, they're depraved and really don't care if they kill their customers, right? But in a certain sense, the killing the customers actually has a little bit of a benefit to them because people who are deeply, deeply addicted are always seeking the most potent drug they can to get the best high they can. So when they see people dying, particularly kids who aren't addicts, like these kids who take one pill, that stuff seems really potent and they want to take that. So in the, in the, in the industry of drug trafficking, you have a concept called hot shot. And hot shot is where they occasionally intentionally kill someone they used to use like a rat poison so that they would show that their stuff is real potent and they could bring new market share. So not only do they not care that they kill people to a very limited extent, they actually kind of want to. But the most basic answer is what you said. It's just it's just a depraved indifference. They, you know, they want to make money and this fentanyl makes them a lot more money and it makes a lot more people die. Oh, well. Right. Oh, well. Right. Okay. so then how do you fight this and how do you combat that? So what I'm here to combat and what the Fentanyl Awareness Coalition is all about is really pressing on what we call the new paradigm. And the new paradigm is the crisis. We had a paradigm shift when that fentanyl came in in 2013, right? And then on top of that, we started pressing it into pills, which heroin never did. We never pressed heroin into fake oxy pills and Xanax pills. They're doing that with fentanyl, right? So those two things, the shift to fentanyl and the putting fentanyl into pills is a whole new paradigm where the people dying are not the chronically addicted, which is what was dying before 2013. So now we've got this whole rate of death going of regular kids who aren't in any addiction, they're not in any substance use disorder, they just take one pill one time. And you can't predict that. See, what, one of the things that the people who fight addiction are after is to find the causes of addiction, predict them, and then intervene to try to divert that person from the path of addiction. You can't do that with a kid who's going to take one party at 17 years old, at a, at one pill at a party at 17 years old. You can't predict that five minutes before it happened, let alone when the kid was 10 years old. You know, so what... Sorry, Michael, I'm so fascinated. This is so, I feel like we could talk to you all morning. We're going to have to bring you back at some point because I really have so many more questions for you. But for now, I have to say thank you so much for joining us. So thank you very much. And if I could, can I plug my my, my website a little bit? Okay, so people go to, uh, they can go to org. 
and I have some of these things up there that they can see, or they can come to our Facebook page, which is uh, which is Fight Fentanyl. It's the uh, uh, FAC uh, Fentanyl Awareness Coalition Facebook page, and we have some of these resources up there where people can. And please bring me back; I can bring you through another few steps of the process and really help to inform people. There is something we can do. All That's right. my final message. We can solve this problem. Then we, we will have you back to talk about that, Michael. Thank you. Thank you so much. That is Michael Gray. Check out the information at the Fentanyl Awareness Coalition. I just learned so much talking to him. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we keep hearing that it is a storm like Winnipeg has not seen before. So let's find out what is really going on there. Global News Winnipeg reporter Brittany Greenslade joins us now to update us on what's happening in Manitoba. And Brittany, you just said to me that you stepped out of the wind. What's going on? Yes, we were down at Portage in Maine, which is the windiest corner intersection in the country, and it certainly has been living up to that moniker over the past two days. We got about 15 centimeters of snow here in Winnipeg. Where I'm standing, or just outside of where I'm standing, it was completely bare yesterday morning at about 4 a.m., so it's a very different scene here right now, but... We had, the storm has been really weird here. We were expecting it to be very similar to the big storm of 97. That's what forecasters were predicting. But we had what was considered um, a dry spot here in Winnipeg. And I mean, 15 centimeters of snow is nothing to, to shirk at. But that, we had that heavy, steady snow, snow yesterday morning. And then about one o'clock, it all just stopped. And forecasters had kept saying, you know, there will be a lull. Don't be fooled by it. This is going to come in waves. And so in Winnipeg, at least, we had a pretty nice reprieve overnight until this morning when, you know, the snow was starting to pick up again. But to the north of us, to the west of us, they did really get hammered. That snow didn't stop. We have highway closures that are still in effect, zero visibility on those highways. Those are still, you know, dangerous and treacherous and people being told not to travel. So while some of us got a bit of a reprieve and are saying, you know, we've even had people say, well, it's not as bad as I expected. And I wish it had been worse. You were telling us it was going to be worse. People almost upset that it wasn't as bad as, <laughs> as we thought in some areas, shockingly. But, you know, we did get that reprieve. We are still expecting anywhere from 2 to 15 centimeters, depending where you are in the southern part of the province today. Uh, you know what? That's something we're very familiar with on the West Coast is that we always <laughs> think, oh, when they tell us it's going to be bad, it's never bad. And then that always <laughs> seems to catch you off guard. So were there areas, though, of Manitoba where it did hit hard? Yeah, there are definitely some areas uh, in the southwestern part of the province. And what's interesting about this system is it's so big. It's going from, you know, the middle part of our province all the way down into the states. And we were seeing some photos from, from North Dakota, from Munich, where those snow drifts were, you know, 10 feet high. And I think that's what a lot of people were expecting here. So while we may not have gotten it as bad as that, this system did still bring with it that massive snowfall. And, you know, those highway closures are a, a big impact because we have a lot of hospitals out in the rural areas. So what was really interesting and what we had preparation for, which was so important, was being able to get our healthcare workers filled to hospitals and taking care of residents in care homes. And so we had uh, an emergency convoy from two rural communities where they basically mustered at two arenas. And um, a snowplow and a fire truck actually led a convoy of healthcare workers to the hospital wow. yesterday, uh, multiple times a day. And today, again, they'll be doing it about three times a day to ensure that our hospitals could keep running and our healthcare workers could get in safely to work. Now, that's a high level of preparation there, Brittany. Is that something that usually happens when there is a big storm? No, and I think that the, the 
key that we've seen here, at least the officials have been telling us, is we had so much warning for this. You know, forecasters were telling us this three, four, five days out. We don't normally get that much notice. And so that was really what they, they, they were preparing for. Prepare for the worst, hope for the best. We hit somewhere in the middle, I think, with that. But you're always going to have some people say, you know, did we prepare too much? Were we, you know, did we think, did we think this was going to be bigger than it was? Did you go too far? We had school cancellations across all of Winnipeg for snow for the first time since 1997. But then, you know, if you don't prepare, this could have been a whole lot worse. We may have seen more people on the roads. We could have seen fatalities on the roads. So, you know, thankfully, people did take this seriously and, and stay home for the most part of that. And, and, you know, that may have helped a lot of people in the long run. It sounds like it. Okay, so then, Brittany, over the next couple of days, like when is this expected to taper off? When will, you know, southern Manitoba start to get back to normal? Well, the one thing that we are going to start seeing is, you know, yesterday the temperatures weren't so bad. It was, you know, one degree. The temperatures are going to start dropping tonight and into tomorrow where we could could be about minus 20 with the wind chill in some areas, especially here in Winnipeg. So definitely not spring-like. But the good news is that snow is going to start to taper off later today and into the weekend, um, at least in Winnipeg and some parts of this. So going into the weekend, while it might be getting colder, that snow is going to get lesser and lesser And then we can look forward, hopefully, to some more positive temperatures next week and hopefully, uh, you know, will spring back to us. All right. Thank you so much for the update and uh, stay warm out there. Thanks, Simi. That's Brittany Greenslade, Global Winnipeg reporter, giving us an update on the big storm. If you've seen any of the pictures, you know Brittany was kind of being a good Winnipeg person there and downplaying it. But, boy, the pictures still make it look pretty bad for middle of April. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, we are going to talk about a trade mission. Do you remember that? I know it feels like it's been so long since politicians have talked about going on a trade mission, but that is what is happening for the Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery, and Innovation. This trade mission will take him to San Francisco and Portland. So what's it for? What do we hope to accomplish? Well, joining us now is Ravi Kalon to talk more about that. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. Does it feel weird to be actually like going somewhere on a trade mission? Uh, yep, very weird. Uh, it was very weird to get on a plane and uh, very weird to be sitting in rooms with, uh, you know, uh, close to 100 people, but uh, uh, but comfortable and, uh, and, uh, and good at the same time. Okay, and so what is the purpose here? What are you doing? Well, uh, as I've shared with the, your listeners before, BC continues to lead the country in economic recovery. But if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. And so we're here uh, meeting with a whole host of companies, uh, some that have a footprint in British Columbia. And we're talking to them about how, uh, whether they would consider expanding that uh, and some that are, don't have any footprint here. And we're talking to them about potentially uh, coming to British Columbia and, and really selling the benefits that we have here. Okay. And what kind of industries are we talking about? Well, it's quite widespread. So we've met with um, folks from the film industry. Uh, we met with the Lucasfilm the other day about uh, their operations. We met with uh, uh, robotics companies that are doing uh, autonomous delivery uh, uh, vehicles. Uh, we met with Rivian, which is an electric trucking company, about the potential of them expanding their footprint in British Columbia. Uh, today, I'm speaking at the International Mass Timber Conference about our mass timber action plan and, uh, and you know, what kind of uh, supports we're putting in place to grow that industry. So it's quite widespread, uh, and it's not just one sector, but 
the reception we've been getting so far is fantastic. Right. But what are they telling us about what we need to do better? Like, what would it take to lure some of these big companies north of the border? Well, the number one thing that uh, that piques their interest, well, two things. One is uh, our climate plan, because most of the companies here uh, have uh, uh, strong desires to meet their ESG advantage or ESG uh, uh, plans. Uh, and, and the second is our people. Uh, overwhelmingly, uh, there's a search for talent. There's a, a desire to go to jurisdictions that uh, put a specific focus on ensuring that their people have the skills they need for the future. So those are a real major selling point. Of course, uh, you know, uh, for every sector, there's some unique things, but that's what their main focus is. They want to get access to good talent uh, so that their companies can continue to thrive. Okay, but there must be things that they would like us to improve. Like, what can we do better? Uh, well, it, it varies. Uh, Samina, it varies. Uh, the, the film industry, uh, they see huge opportunities here. And, uh, and uh, you know, for them, it's just having the certainty around uh, the tax structures that we have in place. They're not asking for anything different. They just want to know that things are staying the way they, they are so they can make some decisions years out. Uh, agritech companies uh, that we met with um, are right now just looking for a place to be able to invest. And so we made some some slight changes to allow vertical farming to be grown on agricultural land. And so that's one of the selling features that we're uh, promoting here. Um, and with mass timber, uh, it's, it's really a new industry. It's growing fast, but it's new. And for us, it's selling to them the, the uh, supports that we're uh, putting in place to, to attract more companies. Okay. And what do you mean by mass timber for people who don't know? Well, mass timber is essentially taking a lot of small pieces of wood, uh, combining them together, pressing them together, uh, some cases using nails, some using glue, or in some cases using a dowel uh, form. And essentially what you can do is you can assemble these large pieces uh, and make them large slabs, and you can create uh, the same strength as steel and concrete for building environments. So you can go up to 18, in fact, 21, 25-story buildings Instead of using concrete and steel, which is heavy with carbon emissions, you can actually use our forest products, which are more sustainable. Uh, and uh, and it, it's a triple word score for British Columbia because not only does it support innovation, because there's a whole lot of technology involved with building with this different product, but it's also good for BC's uh, forest industry because we can keep more of our logs and use them here. And it's great for the environment because it's a more sustainable product than uh, than the alternatives. Right. First of all, you just made a Scrabble reference. Are you a big Scrabble player? I am awful at Scrabble, but I do know what a triple word score is. <laughs> okay. So what are you seeing down in the States then for at these conferences? And do you see our businesses ramping back up? Like what is the growth like down there? Uh, it, things are ramping up here. Uh, and uh, many of the people we're meeting with, that they often say, this is the first meeting we've had with people. <laughs> Uh, in person, uh, there are the, the same trends uh, that we have here are the ones that they uh, have there. Uh, you know, obviously, we're meeting with a lot of um, uh, investors who are just looking to find uh, good companies to invest in. And in many of those cases, they, they you know, BC has never been on their radar. And so that's why we're there to be on their radar. So they know that we've got some amazing things happening. But the same challenges that uh, we are facing in British Columbia, the same as there, uh, you know, more and more of their workforce 
workforce is starting to work remote. Um, and so people are moving uh, from the Bay Area, from Portland to other parts of the province or a state. Uh, and what does that new work environment mean for companies? Um, you know, same challenges with um, mental health. Um, uh, people are feeling the strain of the pandemic and it's really showing. So, in fact, uh, you know, I, I'm leaving this place now thinking we have a lot more in common than, than, than I even thought before I got here. All right. Well, listen, thanks for your time on that this morning. Yeah, thank you so much, Simi. You too. Ravi Kailan, Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. He is currently on a three-day trip to Portland and San Francisco, where he is uh, promoting a number of different BC industries. But just, I was kind of struck by the description there of kind of being in a room with 100 people at a conference. And we know that things are slowly starting to return back to that kind of pre-pandemic era. But I, I don't know how people feel about that, getting back into conferences and big meeting rooms like that. Uh, that is certainly a little bit different. This is Mornings with Simi. Yes, it is true. Canada is in a sixth wave of COVID-19 that has now been confirmed by Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Theresa Tam. Now, we have seen a resurgence of COVID-19 cases right across the country, and that, they believe, is also being undercounted because of the limited amount of, you know, official PCR testing that is going on in, in all provinces, pretty much. But let's talk about what the difference is with this particular wave. How much greater the emphasis is on personal responsibility. Joining us now is Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Good morning, Dr. Conway. Good morning, Simi. Does this wave strike you as as very different from the others? Yes, it is the transition from pandemic to endemic COVID, the transition from being told what to do to deciding on our own what to do. And it begins, as I heard on the commercial, when I was on hold a minute ago by getting our boosters. Well, do you think not enough people still are not doing that? What is going on? Because people want COVID to be over. I continue to hear this. It's gone. Thank God it's gone. We're not hearing about it in the media. Dr. Henry isn't speaking to us anymore. The rules are gone. That must mean that COVID is gone and nothing is further from the truth. This is our challenge right now, is convincing people that it can be normal or near normal with COVID, but there are still things we need to do on an individual basis. Okay, like what? Get your booster, stay home if you're sick, keep washing your hands like you've learned to do over the past two years, and wear your mask strategically. We've gone from mask mandates to mask etiquette. Let's learn to use our masks properly. And do you think people are following this? Like, Dr. Conway, from the people that I've run into who've told me that they've had COVID recently, they seem to be pretty good from what I've seen at, at doing the isolation, checking the BCCDC website, and making sure that they're following the rules. Many are. A few too many aren't. And I think we need to all pull together to get this right. And I think those who are doing it well should be examples for others as to how you can actually do it well and live a life that actually feels pretty normal. And I think that's people's concerns, is that their lives have been so turned around over the past couple of years, so not normal, that they fear that any rules or any change from what they knew before will just not feel good. And it actually does. And I think that's the message we need to get out. 
also, you know, people are, are kind of very much going back to doing what they were doing before. And as, it, as people are just, they don't want to think about COVID anymore because they're so happy to be doing what they were doing before. That is exactly what's happening. You have it exactly right. That's what I'm seeing is that they don't want to think about COVID. And there are ways of thinking about COVID and being happy and near normal and that's what we need to model. That's what we need to get out there. So is this a natural part of dealing with pandemics? And, you know, also when it becomes endemic, Dr. Conway, that is to start emphasizing that personal responsibility here. Exactly. That's what we've done with influenza. We're 100 years out from the pandemic of influenza. And we still talk about flu season, flu shots, being careful, especially with a lot of people indoors. In the winter, we still talk about that. And we need to develop a message parallel to that that incorporates COVID, especially when we will get to the shots in the fall, when we will be told in the fall, pretty much all of us, you will get your COVID shot. It's now a new, improved, Omicron-specific COVID shot, especially, or, or perhaps the variant of the day. We want people to embrace that the same way as they embrace the first vaccine. So what kind of impact is this sixth wave having? We know the number of cases are going up. We know that there's measurement in wastewater. So we know there's way more cases than we know of. But what kind of an impact is it having? It is increasing the number of hospitalizations, the number of people who are admitted to the ICU. But in a way that we've learned to manage at this point, it is increasing absenteeism in certain fields, especially in the healthcare field. But if we were to wait for COVID to be completely gone before we transitioned to this personal responsibility, I think that really wouldn't be practical. That would be doing more harm than good. So I think this is the balance that we're achieving. And so far, we're doing as well as can be expected. Okay, so you're saying this is a necessary transition period. Absolutely. I think we are going to start hearing about the harms of what we did. In, uh, in COVID world, about how we hurt the elderly, hurt school-aged children, hurt the inner city, hurt many businesses that shouldn't have had to close. So we will learn from that on how to do things better as we build back. But build back we must, and it needs to start now. All right, listen, thank you very much for that this morning. Thanks very much for having me. That's Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. And what I love about talking to Dr. Conway is that it's so he's so balanced and so, you know, logical and rational with it, understanding that people are going to be people, that we are going to go out and do the things that we want to do and can, can clearly see that people are loving getting back to normal in so many ways. So this wave of COVID-19 and you know, you maybe you have stopped thinking about it or talking about it, but yes, there is another wave of COVID nineteen is so different because so much of the emphasis on this one is personal responsibility. And that is testing yourself at home. And if you're positive, okay, well, then you isolate as much as you can for five days and then go from there. All the recommendations, by the way, of what to do are on the BC CDC website, easy for you to check out. But essentially, they want you to check it out and you to follow the rules and make sure that you are doing that. That's how we deal with COVID. Now, if you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about what is going on overseas. Now, there is a delicate balance going on now that Finland and Sweden have, you know, openly 
uh, speculated about joining NATO in the near future, whether they should abandon decades of kind of military non-alignment as the policy that they have had. What is NATO going to be doing with that? And clearly Russia not pleased with that. How will the United States respond to that? So we thought, let's check in with Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Uh, First off, let's talk a little bit about President Biden and the potential of going to Ukraine. Has there been some pressure on him to do so since we saw the UK prime minister go? There has been pressure. Uh, there have been uh, comments uh, that have kind of been ringing throughout Washington as to why the president uh, is not going. The White House uh, is simply not putting out any kind of statements to say that it is in the plans or it's in the works. Oftentimes, if there's something that they don't want to talk about, they'll say that they've got uh, information that they'll roll out at a later date, but they're not even doing that. Uh, the pressure is mounting, though, considering we've seen uh, the UK president, uh, prime minister go. We've seen Baltic leaders go within the last 24 hours into Kiev and meet with uh, with President Zelensky. Uh, it's still an open question as to whether or not the president is going to go, despite the fact that there is mounting pressure, not only from Republicans, but from within his own party as well. Interesting. Okay. And so what has the U.S. response been to this kind of very open discussion and speculation about Finland and Sweden potentially joining NATO? Well, I mean, look, the United States is in the same position where uh, NATO leadership is with Secretary General Jens Soltenberg saying that this is not something that the organization uh, is going to pressure somebody into joining. There have only been uh, a dozen or maybe 14 that have joined since the late 90s, and they do so at their own accord. And both Finland and Sweden uh, have been told by NATO, if this is something you want to do, this needs to be done uh, by uh, by a vote within your own country. There needs to be public support for it. Uh, and that appears to be the picture now. There is a public uh, sentiment surrounding joining NATO by both the Finns and by the Swedes, with their leaders saying uh, that this is going to potentially lead to uh, a vote in the next couple of weeks, citing uh, the aggressive tactics that have taken place between Russia and Ukraine over the last several months, but also saying, look, there is a threat that exists right now, but there is also a threat that exists down the road that if we do nothing, do we potentially find ourselves in line uh, for, for, for an invasion by Russia? Right. And is the U.S. still openly talking about the intelligence that it has on on Russia's movements, the troop movements and what's going on? Are they still being very open about that? They're being open about it uh, to the best that they can because you know it's it's getting more and more difficult to get uh, intelligence out of uh, out of Ukraine uh, solely because there are no observers on the ground and they have to rely basically uh, on Ukrainian military or on satellites uh, to provide them with information, which is why we've seen uh, this kind of moving military posture from you know parts of uh, of Belarus in towards eastern parts uh, of Ukraine. But the United States is saying, uh, and the Pentagon yesterday said that they uh, are sharing and being open about all intelligence that they're able to give into Ukraine as well uh, so as to not potentially put things out in the open and throw you know, a, a potential kind of grenade into the middle of, of what this intelligence is going to give them. Uh, but at the end of the day, the U.S. is still acting as a very strong leader, both when it comes to intelligence and yesterday, as we saw, with hundreds upon hundreds of millions of dollars of military aid and support. Right. And so what has been the response of the American people on this? Are they, do they want to see the United States help out Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, look, there, there is there is public support for uh, how the United States uh, as a country is working uh, when it comes to delivering this uh, aid and weaponry to Ukraine in order to see Ukraine succeed. There are some people uh, maybe on the far right side of things, potentially towards, you know, names that ring a bell with Fox News uh, uh, viewers who will say that the United States is doing simply too much. But there is broad support for the U.S. assistance. There is not so much broad support when it comes to President Biden and 
his abilities to lead the country. He's losing support uh, in the popularity polls at a pretty rapid clip. But overall, support for the country and for uh, for how the country is moving forward with its ability to assist Ukraine's military uh, is on the plus side. Right. But for now, it is we just want to send kind of money and supplies over there. It's money and supplies. And as we heard yesterday, there's going to be uh, aerial support as well with helicopters that are sent. And that was something that was a bit of a point of contention for the White House because any kind of aerial combat potentially could be seen as a red line uh, for Russia. So there was kind of a back and forth as to whether this was going to take place. Ultimately, with the announcement from the White House yesterday that $800 million in aid was going to include helicopters, uh, that is a big deal for Ukraine. We'll have to see uh, if, you know, if it gets the Russian backs up inside the Kremlin and whether or not they kind of put any more of this this bluster out like we heard with the nuclear uh, comments about Finland and Sweden. That's what we will wait to see. All right, Reggie, thank you for that update. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, uh, just seeing what the United States reaction is to the latest developments happening in Ukraine and the ways in which they continue to remain involved in that situation. And yes, the you know, European Union has been deeply involved in this situation. I mean, it is right there in their backyard. Uh, you saw the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson go to for a visit to Ukraine as well. So yeah, there's pressure on other world leaders to uh, show your support in that significant way. This is Mornings with Simi. I have to say, there are a lot of elements to this next story that we're going to talk about that sound like something out of a movie. But then when you hear the synopsis or the details, you might think, no, that's a little too unbelievable. Well, Kim Boland joins us now, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun to talk more about this case. Kim, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Okay, so we're talking about a man here who was just sentenced to 41 months in jail in the States for pulling a gun on two strangers during a robbery in Seattle. But what do we know about this person? Well, his real name is Nassim Mohammed. He's just 24 years old, but he's already racked up a lot of contact with police. He's a high-ranking member of the Brothers Keepers gang. Of course, we know that gang has been involved in a lot of uh, shootings and murders here on the Lower Mainland, including the very you know dramatic airport shooting uh, last May where someone was killed right on the doorstep of our international airport. Uh, Nassim Mohammed is a suspect in a number of murders. Uh, we know that because Canadian authorities passed that information to U.S. authorities so they would understand who this fellow is. But if you ask Canadian police, I hit here in B.C., oh, gee, you know, you've said this guy's a murder suspect. Uh, what murders is he a suspect in? Of course, they won't say anything to us here. Right. So he snuck across the border in January of 2021. He was already wanted here on uh, quite serious charges in Ontario of unlawful confinement and assault and uttering death threats, but not, uh, you know, something as serious as murder. Uh, and he was living in Surrey at his family's home. Police did a curfew check. He literally snuck out the back door, slammed the door in their face, snuck out the back door, and off he went, right? So there's been a warrant out for his arrest ever since then, uh, but he was still in Canada for several more months uh, before he, you know, with three other people, you know, snuck across the border into Montana. Uh, because they were acting kind of suspicious near the border. Uh, they were spotted by U.S. Border Patrol, who picked them up. Uh, but uh, Nassim uh, told them that he had a different name and was an American. He was born in Seattle, and he just didn't have his ID on him. So they checked his fingerprints in the database in the U.S. only, and nothing came up. They let him go. What? 
They let him go. Yeah, we've got we've got the photos of his arrest. He's got his mask on. He's a very small man, and he looks very young, right? I mean, he's only twenty four, but he looks younger. And uh, so we've got that kind of you know glum face, and and off he went, and then uh, he was on the loose again. So because there were then court papers sworn in the U.S. Uh, saying he was a fugitive not only in Canada, but now at that point he had like you know falsely entering the U.S. charges, lying to a federal officer charges laid against him. And, uh, you know, no one really, I was getting tips that he was in Seattle, tips that he had gone down to L.A., tips that he was in Mexico. And then lo and behold, uh, he was arrested in Seattle last November using a different name um, than the one he used to cross into the United States. And he had tried to rob these two strangers in a hookah lounge of all places. Um, so, you know, this guy, he, you know, he's now admitted that he did that. He's, I, I got all the U.S. court documents for the latest charges, and I found it bizarre that he signed his plea agreement using his alias. <laughs> You'd really? wonder if that's like a legal document, if you're not using your correct name, right? So, anyway, he's now behind bars for, you know, a couple of years at least. It's a 41-month sentence. Usually in the U.S. they do at least 80% of their sentence. Uh, so I suppose it gives Canadian authorities more time to build the murder investigations that he's a part of on this side of the border. You know, Kim, what gets me about this is, you know, law-abiding citizens crossing the border. We get so nervous about crossing the border, right? Making sure we have everything in order. Uh, you know, we're kind of intimidated by that process. But here's somebody who is busted near the border and then doesn't have any papers or it just seems so sketchy and they just let him go. They just let him go. The, two of the people he was with uh, were wanted, and they kept them in custody. They were older guys. Uh, but I think it's because he said he was an American, right? So if you're an American and you're on that side of the border. So he's, he's quite a hustler in that he's able to tell stories. He's quick on his feet that are fairly convincing to authorities, right? Um, so, I, you know, the other thing that I haven't mentioned is he's also kind of an aspiring rapper, And throughout his time on the run, he has posted videos, gone on social media, Instagram primarily, and, uh, you know, did these uh, songs where he's taunting his rivals here in Canada. So it was really mocking Canadian authorities, you know, that this guy's on the run, he's a suspect in murder cases, and, hey, you know, he's dropping a new song in a couple of days and inviting everyone to come on to Instagram and listen to it. That, again, just makes it seem like some kind of bad movie, like a B-movie that we're talking about here. Um, but when somebody is is kind of caught like that close to the border or arrested that close to the border, I guess I'm also surprised that they wouldn't check with cooperation, you know, what's going on. Is this person wanted just across the border? Well, you would think so. And they right. did eventually get the information, but, you know, the timing was just really bad because they had just let him go. Hours later, they get this information from Canada about who he is. Um, but, you know, he, he's managed to uh, evade police for quite some time, but uh, his luck ran out last November. But it's pretty brazen behavior, right? No you know, uh, But he obviously needed some money, uh, you know, because otherwise I don't understand why you would do that. Uh, and likely get caught. I guess he thought the people were not going to call police, but they called police right from the hookah lounge, and they got there, and he had hidden the gun under a couch in the hookah lounge and you know, pretended that, you know, he was just some guy and he didn't do anything, and, uh, you know, then they found the gun. But it was all because of, you know, these people that were had guns pointed at them and were, you know, threatened with death 
calling authorities on this guy that his uh, reign on the run was over. What a bizarre story. So you're right. So many twists and turns on this one. Kim, thanks for telling us about it this morning. Anytime. Thank you. That's Kim Bolin, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Check out her latest story on this particular person called Nassim Mohammed, who's used a number of different aliases, going to jail now in the United States, sentenced to 41 months in jail. But it doesn't sound like law enforcement on this side of the border is done with this person yet. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, now we are going to talk about what has been happening overseas. We've heard this morning that 150 members of the Canadian Armed Forces are now going to be deployed to Poland. Now, this is a humanitarian mission to support Ukrainian refugees who have been fleeing the Russian invasion. And they are there to help out in any way, or according to the Defence Minister, uh, receive the best support possible for people. But lots of people have been doing this on their own in the last six weeks as well, since that invasion started. For instance, our next guest also did that, flew over there, based himself in Poland, and was helping uh, Ukrainians who were fleeing. But let's hear his story now. Milos Pospisil joins us, a former volunteer evacuation driver for Ukrainian families. Milos, thank you for being with us. Yes, good morning. Thank you for having me. What, why did you go over there and tell me what you were doing there? Yes. Um, all right, why did I go? Well, I felt compelled um, to help in, in, in any way that I could. Um, I just uh, saw the footage on TV um, of the refugees streaming across the border, you know, the, the young children without their parents. Um, and it just really affected me on a deeper level. Um, although I have no ties to Ukraine, I am myself a, a refugee from Russian-occupied Czechoslovakia, so I'm a refugee to Canada as well. And yeah, I just felt a tremendous compulsion to um, uh, to do something about it. I, I wasn't able to connect with any, any NGOs or anyone that would, you know, sort of meet me there, so I just decided to go independently. And what did you do? Um, How did you do that? I just booked my ticket. You know, I booked my ticket. I flew into Krakow um, in Poland, rented a seven-seater van, uh, drove towards the border with Ukraine, and just started uh, assessing the situation, driving around. Um, I found uh, the refugee center in in Premisl, which is quite close to the Ukrainian border, close to the Medica crossing that a lot of us uh, see in, in the news. Um, so it was very improvised. Uh, it was an independent effort. Um, and I spent two weeks there um, basically identifying um, vulnerable families, um, mothers with children, the elderly, um, because, you know, 98 percent of the refugees coming out of Ukraine are just women and children. The men uh, between 18 and 60, I believe, are, are required to stay and defend the country. Um, so I would just identify vulnerable families at the refugee center and offer them rides to wherever they were trying to go. Um, I ended up evacuating about seven families. Wow. What was it like? What were you hearing from these families? Yeah, that, was, that wasn't easy to listen to. These are the heavily traumatized people, of course, you can imagine. Um, the, the ones that I had been evacuating at that time, I was there only two weeks into the war. Um, they were coming from the east, that most heavily hit cities like Kharkiv um, in the east, um, uh, you know, uh, uh north of uh, Kiev. Of course, we're all now familiar 
with the uh, the horrendous war crimes that have happened uh, around the Kiev area, and that's where some of these refugees were coming from. So, I mean, you know, it's a good thing they, they got out of there when they did. And, of course, some of them had spent days in their cellar or their basements while their houses were being uh, shelled. Um, so the, these, these were deeply traumatized people who hadn't eaten, you know, uh, well, very well in a long time. Uh, they were the, when I was there, it was very cold. You know, they had spent hours or days even trying to cross the border. So, right. you know, it, yeah. it, is that help? The, what you were doing there is just one kind of individual person. Milos, has that help now been more become more organized? Are there organizations now doing that kind of work? It got better while I was there gradually over the two weeks, yes. Um, but most of the effort there is still volunteer run. Uh, to my knowledge, there are uh, people like myself driving there from the UK, from the Netherlands and other countries. Um, a lot of the um, uh, management of that refugee center in Premisal is actually run uh, by the municipality when I was last there. So we're talking about the fire brigade, local police, uh, eventually some reservists. Polish reservists uh, started turning up. But the biggest issue is security for these refugees, aside from their basic needs, of course, is is human um, trafficking. They are constantly at risk uh, of being trafficked. So I'm really happy to see that Canada is uh, sending, that we're sending our troops over there in solidarity with our uh, NATO ally Poland and with Ukraine, because I think the biggest difference they're going to be able to make is protect these people. Are you tempted, Milos, to go back at any point? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm, I'm already, you know, planning uh, to go back at some point in the summer, depending on how the uh, how the war progresses. Um, if that if that uh, offensive that we're expecting from the Russians in the east, um, you know, goes badly for Ukraine, I think we're going to see uh, uh, many more refugees than we are right now. What would you like to see Canada do? Everything possible. I'd like to, I'd like to see um, as much military assistance as possible. We're all aware that they need heavy weaponry. I don't know if we have what they need, but whatever we can give them would be great. Um, uh, what we're doing right now by sending our troops over to protect these refugees is, is great. Um, um, you know, I know our government is condemning the war crimes. We should be pushing for everything possible on that front. Um, and I, you know what else I'd like to see is we need to expel the Russian diplomats from this country. We should take uh, Europe's lead and uh, require them to leave. Well, Milos, thank you very much for telling us your story and for joining us. Thank you very much for having me.